BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. I'm as mad as hell and I'm not going to take this anymore. Hello, friends. Welcome back to the show. I have an amazing guest today and probably one of the most incredible British accents in the history of Out of Patience. Victoria Fenton was misdiagnosed and misdiagnosed and misdiagnosed for 10 years as a teenager with all sorts of horrible things that the doctors were like, eh, it's mental health. Get over it. Here's a pill. Eh, you're crazy. It's in your head. Yeah. Famous last words, I can relate. I was misdiagnosed for six months. It was in your head. Guess what? It was in my head. It was brain cancer. But in Victoria's case, it was a very, very rare condition called Ehlers-Danlos Syndrome, which is just a horrible, rare connective tissue disorder that has no cures, minimal treatments, and you kind of have to fend for yourself a very challenging life, to say the least. But she realized that when you have no control over something, you can somehow take control over something. So she chose to immerse herself in the worlds of natural language processing and cognitive behavioral therapy. And what she found out was the obvious. Our minds and our bodies can control the way our minds and our bodies interact with the universe around us and not heal us, not cure us but just help us manage the way we deal with stressors. The big word of the day was psychoneuroimmunology. We talked about functional versus dysfunctional medicine, being your own advocate and pursuing what you want and what you need on your terms. Presenting one of the coolest British accents I've ever welcomed to the show, Dame Victoria Fenton. No, she's not a dame. She just sounds like one. Victoria Fenton, enjoy the show. Victoria Fenton, welcome to Out of Patience. Thank you so much for having me. I suppose I'm obligated to, uh, as an American, to express my condolences on the loss of your queen. Oh, well, thank you. Um, I didn't know her personally, um, but yes, it has been a strange time in the country. It's been a very, very somber time for reflection over there. It's just been so fascinating to me over the 50 years I've been living in this country, how the royal family plays such an incredible role in the world and in culture, and yet the obsession over it in the States is vastly different than the importance it actually has in your country. Oh, and and how. And it's interesting to think of this monarch in particular because the time of the the shift that she's been in power, she's overseen the shifts where, you know, when she came to power, they actually had importance. They actually had a role to play and did things, whereas over the time of her reign... 
you know, they don't do anything. It's it's a title more than anything else. And, you know, um, publicity and marketing for the country, basically, which is why the Americans absolutely love it. And all of the pomp and circumstance that we just kind of take for granted. I think everyone over, over the funeral in particularly, but just a general move into the period of mourning was just so much tradition that even we had no idea we had. And suddenly there's a protocol for everything and Americans just seem to absolutely fall in love with it all over again. So, yeah. Well, I mean, if Twitter existed in the 80s and it only had one account, it would be the Queen. Mm-hmm. Or yeah. Princess Diana. Like, that. Well, if Twitter, one account in 1988, it's Princess Diana. That was all the tabloids were, was the British family. Yeah, and and all of the scandal recently with Harry and Meghan and all the things. It's like, the, it's always interesting because I think there's just that breakdown of we just don't understand it. Like, <laughs> like how are there these people who get born into this scenario where you can't price some of their impact and all of, all of those sorts of things. But yeah, they're a certain force to be reckoned with, that's for sure. Yeah, and, and like you said, she's been reigning for, or she reigned, past tense, that is true, for, what, 70 years, something like that? Mm, mm-hmm, yeah, yeah. And, you know, she came to the throne when she was 21 and no life experience, nothing. And the choices that she made and the things that she did and oversaw as shifts within our country, including a lot of disempowering of the royal family. You know, we took away boats and we took away planes and we decommissioned various things because they were taking too much of the taxpayers' money. And then she was fairly instrumental in ensuring that the royal family kept in step as the world changed. I don't think she was using their Instagram account, I have to say. I think that's probably managed by other people. Um, but it's so interesting because they still did all of the traditional things. So the basically the town criers or people who announced things in person still went round to all of the important places in the UK once the Queen had passed away. Even though we all knew because we have 24-hour news cycle, all of the traditions were set in place way before that even existed so that these people still had to like travel and, and give the announcements. It was the strangest combination of modern 24-hour coverage media and also doing all of the ancient traditional stuff. Well, the, I think we talked about on our Zoom call, the Eddie Izzard does the whole bit about the shrinking British Empire. And, you know, she's, of course, seen its uh, significant withdrawal over the last 75 years or so. And the bit's like, uh, hey, England, what's that behind you? Oh, it's India and a bunch of other things. <laughs> <laughs> you got to yeah. give us back now. Well, yeah, I mean, we have given a lot back, but we still have a Commonwealth. Like we still own ridiculous parts of the world and yeah. like have a say in Australia. It's just like, how how is this still happening? Like, it, And people did object. And I have to say there was a lot of negativity about this kind of institution, but I still came back to every time, well, hang on a second, you can criticize the institution, but not the person who was at the head of it, who did a phenomenal job, in my opinion. Well, speaking of dying in your 90s, um, that's kind of a nice problem to have, right? Dying in perfect health? For sure. Yeah. Um, I, she had an amazing innings, as we would say. It's, it's shocking to think that she really was not unwell at all. Even towards the end, it was very much, oh, to say it's the death that she would have wanted is probably the worst thing in the world to say, but it kind of was, especially in Balmoral, where she loved to be, but in a technically really fine health. She was doing a formal engagement not two days beforehand so so yeah it's fascinating to me about you know genetics is always the thing that you know roll the dice when you're born mm -hmm. my mm -hmm. grandmother my mom's mom was only in the hospital twice in her life once when my mother was mm -hmm. born in 1949 and once when she had mm -hmm. a gallbladder out in 1977 and then she mm -hmm. died of nothing at 99 years yeah. old yeah and it's it's remarkable because that 
I think we've lost the generation for whom that would be true. I think that is my grandparents' generation is where that kind of, we've only been in the hospital twice and we die fairly peacefully. I don't know that we've still got those sorts of people in the world. And I don't think that's just a genetics thing. I think that is a, the world is much more toxic and much more fill in the blank. You know, there's many more drains and stresses on the human system now. So I don't know. I don't know whether we're still going to get those kind of like, I've never been in hospital and I'm passing away peacefully at 90 year old generations anymore. <laughs> When's that going to happen again? Never. <laughs> it's all, all finished. Yeah. No, we, we've all got illnesses now. Now it's like dog paddling to 90. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah, we'll, do, we'll we'll crawl there and we just might be bankrupt in the process. So for the listeners, uh, Victoria and I had a fabulous Zoom call a couple of weeks ago and just really got to know each other. And it turns out we had, I mean, maybe unsurprisingly, a thousand things in common, being yeah. 7,000 miles apart and growing up completely different lives. But the least of which came down to kind of getting fucked by healthcare in your younger years and mm -hmm. just not being taken seriously and having to fend for yourself. Yes, for sure. I think we both shared that kind of, I was saying something for so long and wasn't really listened to Genesis story of getting into any world of healthcare and all the things. Yeah, so it doesn't really matter how crappy or less crappy or more crappy your country's healthcare system is, you're still kind of screwed. <laughs> <laughs> yes. And, you know, it doesn't matter whether you're paying for it or, you know, we have the National Health Service in the UK, which is seen in very positive lights by other countries and, you know, completely, let me qualify, saved my life on several occasions and also completely failed to understand why I was ill in the first place. And those two things uh, don't really help. You know, it's, it's great at emergency care, but then having to fight and then pay privately and then still do your own investigation to self-diagnose is kind of, well, that was my journey. And it's so common in a lot of people that I see um, within my clinical practice. Right. So let's talk about the fairness of this because mm. this isn't like, you know, heart disease or obvious things that one doctor might say, oh, you have measles. They're right all over your face. When you're mm -hmm. diagnosed with something that is insanely uncommon, is it really fair to expect the doctors, the health system to, oh, snap, that's what this is. Because I went misdiagnosed for a year. You went misdiagnosed for seven years. Where do you draw the line on, I want to be pissed, but I can't really be pissed? It's an interest. It's such an interesting question. And one that I have had to ration with in my kind of like healing journey, if you like. It's those, I feel like there is a degree of leeway that I need to give the doctors who saw me. I think the interesting thing was that I wasn't getting a, we don't know. I was getting a, oh, we are going to tell you that what's happening is X. And they completely didn't look at any evidence to the contrary of that diagnosis. So to put some detail on that, I had ruptured my esophagus and was actually dealing with a genetic connective tissue disorder, which was causing all sorts of problems. But every diagnosis that I had was almost a physical visual appraisal where people looked at me, saw that I was really skinny because I wasn't basically keeping my food down very well. And they diagnosed me with eating disorders. And the problem with that is that as soon as you get a, a label, especially a mental health led label, 
no more questions are asked and everything then becomes, oh, we're just going to shove this person in the bucket of mental health problem and everything is seen through that lens. So whilst there is a lot of leeway that I can emotionally give to them for not getting the diagnosis right first time, I do think there is a lot of responsibility that our clinicians have for that castigation with a brush of diagnosis that puts you in a very specific box and absolutely limits your capacity to get any more answers, especially if you get a mental health label, any more tests and any more investigation to try and help you diagnose yourself even, you're always being brought back to, oh, we know it's all in your head, dear. And that I think is the challenge. Right. That's like uh, like misdiagnosis jail. Yeah, exactly. And I had the best, most highly lauded uh, gastroenterologist in, in London, right in the center. We paid to see him. And his statement was, oh, well, we all know that if I do this fancy test on you, it's just going to come back negative because we know what's really going on here, don't we, Victoria? I found out, I think eight years later, that if he'd have done that test on me, he would have found essentially a, a large part of my problem and we, I would have had an entirely different life story. Well, I, I want to go back to the it's all in your head because I had the same experience too. And I had brain cancer and it was yeah, in my head. <laughs> kind of was, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like, thanks for the diagnosis, misdiagnosis, diagnosis. <laughs> you were right and wrong and yes. right and wrong. Exactly. So yeah. <laughs> so many problems with this label, but yeah. <laughs> yeah. I'll take the label, but now it, now it applies before it didn't. But yes, like, <laughs> the, you know, it's like get over it therapy was what like medicine was back in the 90s. <laughs> I, I mean, I do a lot of work with trauma now in, in my practice, and I do a lot of work within the realm of those kind of gray area things which are complex and multifaceted in origin. And still, I'm supremely careful to make sure I'm not saying to anyone, this is in your head or using the word psychosomatic and people just take home, oh, well, that means it's all in my head. And it, that's not what it means at all. It's such a negative landscape to put yourself in because it completely limits your access to anything, any healthcare, any true healing potential. It also speaks to the nature of Hippocrates, right? These are men and women who go to medical school to practice intentionally not to do any harm. So mm. as much as you hope they approach you with empathy, most doctors may not be empaths. They might be mechanics and they want to follow what they consider academic allopathic science and research. Sorry, mm. lots of syllables there. Very onomatopoetic <laughs> show today. Alliterative, onomatopoeia, synonym, yeah, all that stuff. All them, yeah. Thank you, eighth grade English. Okay, moving on. <laughs> And yet, you know, if you are so convinced that you know your body better than them mm. and they are refusing to engage you in that rational discourse, yeah, there's reason to throw some flame there. And it's so interesting because my journey through this wasn't, I'm standing firm in my connection to my body and I know exactly what's wrong. I had to go through the process of, well, hang on a second. These are the white coat people. Maybe they know better than me. Maybe I've got a part of me inside me that is intentionally trying to kill myself that I can't find consciously. Oh my God, how scary is that? Like there's a part of me that's trying to kill myself that I can't even hear and see and understand. And so it's essentially gaslighting is what we'd call it now. Mm, but yes. that word didn't exist when this was happening to me and to, to many other people that I now know of. And it is that sense of it almost didn't matter what I then believed about myself. I had to run it through 
a bullshit filter, essentially, that was calibrated incorrectly because it was calibrated to another powerful authority's sense of what was right and wrong. And it completely disconnected me from my body for a lot of years because I was dealing with a felt sense reality and then having to rationalize what somebody else was saying about what was happening, knowing the two were not the same thing and not knowing how to square that circle. And so that leads you down a whole realm of different traumas, different experiences of you know, just angst, essentially. Well, it's like sedimentary rock. <laughs> it just keeps piling on and piling on and piling on. Just to right. give the listener some perspective, you were misdiagnosed for over a decade. You had five separate major hospitalizations. And I, if I'm paraphrasing correctly, several near-death experiences. I mean, several could be two or 35. So one's enough. It was <laughs> One is enough. And it was maybe three or four over those, that period. Yeah. Right. And and were they then, oh my God, she's actually telling the truth. There's something wrong with her that I'm not aware oh, of. No, <laughs> no, no. The first near-death experience, which was my parents were told I wasn't going to make it through the night. Uh, they That was when they actually found the evidence that I must have had a rupture in my esophagus at one point. And they actually whisked me down into a high dependency unit. They put me on all sorts of drips and things like that because I was being tube fed at the time. And you can't do that if you have a hole in your esophagus because the food will leak into your chest cavity, essentially. So they were like, oh my goodness, this is serious. And then when I pulled through it, it was, well, we know that you did this to yourself by being sick. <laughs> that was that was what happened. Oh dear God. And there was there was a question mark at that point as to whether they had ruptured my esophagus through the insertion of what was a nasogastric tube, so essentially a tube that goes through your nose into your stomach, um, which could easily have happened. Actually, we now know that it had happened several years prior to that, and it had happened the night that I got sick for the first time. But yeah, no, the first thing wasn't, oh no, there is something really wrong. There is, oh gosh, you're so unwell that you've actually caused some real damage. Aren't you a silly girl? Was the take home. Cliffhanger. Did she make it? We'll be back after these messages. <laughs> As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be Continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. Look around. You can find cars like these on AutoTrader. New cars, used cars, electric cars, maybe even flying cars. Okay, no flying cars, but as soon as they get invented, they'll be on Auto Trader. Just you wait. Auto Trader. All right, Victoria, we're back. Yes. You're alive. Spoiler. I'm alive. I did make it. Spoiler alert. All right, I want to share an experience <laughs> with you and hear what you have to respond to. So mm -hmm. I went misdiagnosed, as we discussed, for a long time, and they're like, oh, you have brain cancer. I was like, thank God, it's something. And oh, fuck, it's what? Did you have that? I did it so much that I was like, oh, my God, thank God I have this genetic. I'm never going to get better from this. This is a terrible thing, condition. Give me all the drugs, please. <laughs> that was my <laughs> response. And, and I was very much in, this, in the perspective of assuming that diagnosis meant treatment. 
And in my case, it meant, oh, we're going to give you this one drug that you react to a quarter of a tablet of, oh dear, we can't medicate you. Good luck. Go away. Mm -hmm. That was kind of my experience. So my relief was very short-lived. I went from no diagnoses to about four or five diagnoses within the space of probably a month. And was it, I mean, for me, that level of understanding completely changed my settledness inside my own system. And it genuinely was the piece of uh, revelation that I needed to enable me to then heal. But the healing was absolutely not linear from then. It wasn't treat the illness where, hey, we're, we're done. It was, oh, I now need to start a basically what turned into a several year education in functional medicine and nutrition to then help myself to then get to the point where I could actually be okay again. So yeah, complex. So from the, if only there was a giant ball pit of medicine I could swim in for the rest of my <laughs> literally life. Literally like dunk myself in. <laughs> to I'm in a desert of nothingness with myself and a cactus. Yes. And this is going to be managed, quote unquote, for the rest of your life. And um, we don't know how to help you. Oh, cool. Oh, great. Thanks. Uh, okay. Now what do I do? And I did have my fuck it moment. I had my I, so I was at this point, I was self intubating every night. So I was putting a tube down my nose to, into my stomach every night to tube feed myself overnight, then extubating in the morning because my entire digestive system had completely stopped working. So I was doing this and I literally one morning when I was like ripping this tube out of my nose was like, this can't be my life. Mm -hmm. I mean, it just can't be. And so I had my typical, whatever you want to call it, come to Jesus moment of there has to, my body cannot be this fundamentally broken. There has to be a way to make it work, but I was going to have to find it myself. There was no way I was going to be handed it on a silver platter. So in the rare disease space, I've interviewed people who've had the disease named after them. And that's very terrifying when you're the only one who makes the <laughs> disease the name. There were other people that have this before you, and I know that really wasn't a comfort, but let's discuss what this is. It's called Ehlers-Danlos Syndrome, E-D-S, yes. right? Yes, yes. Were there other people that you met who had it when you realized that's what you were dealing with? Only through the internet. So I didn't really know anyone at the time who had it. And the thing with Ehlers-Danlos Syndrome is it is essentially a cluster of conditions that all have the same cause, which is the faulty production of collagen within the system. So essentially, the gene coding for creating collagen is slightly skewed in people with Ehlers-Danlos Syndrome. And people may have heard of something called hypermobility. And hypermobility is just flexible joints, etc. And that is a smaller version of Ehlers-Danlos Syndrome in in a sense, people with EDS and who can qualify for the EDS category have more flexibility or more specific laxity in certain areas. And so after a period of not very good diagnostics, I eventually discovered that I have what is called classic type Ehlers-Danlos Syndrome, which is more rare than just generally Ehlers-Danlos Syndrome. And that gave me some internal organ flexibility, hence the ability to rupture my own esophagus, and then various elements of other internal organ laxity is what we call it, so overstretchiness of everything. And so I found research papers that seemed to describe me to a T, including everything I've been through in childhood before I was even sick, just these characteristics. And then I found Facebook forums and then immediately realized that was a terrible place to hang out. <laughs> Yes. <laughs> and so very quickly. <laughs> I'm wait, Captain Obvious moment here. Right. Well, it that tribal mentality of we're all in it together is very attractive for about a nanosecond. And then you realize that actually if you're on a trajectory to try and heal, you don't need every person who's 
in there to try and tell you exactly the things you should be doing and avoiding and taking and all those sorts of things. So I found evidence that people had it, but I hadn't met anyone and wasn't likely to meet anyone with my kind of specific set of diagnoses. Because with my Ehlers-Danlos syndrome at the time of my diagnosis, I also had something called mast cell activation disorder, which is a basically immune dysfunction. And then I had postural orthostatic tachycardia syndrome and dysautonomia. Fancy words to say my nervous system, my autonomic nervous system was not able to keep me in balance in homeostasis. So I was pretty unwell. Yeah, but a catch. <laughs> you were a total catch. <laughs> I was a total catch. I was really skinny. I mean, that's about the only thing. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, it was a lot to try and then unpick. But because I had that complexity and was really I had a good brain that was good at doing first principles thinking. I was able to unpick some of the understandings underneath all of these diagnoses to try and work out, okay, so what is this body actually doing? And once I started to do that, I actually became a professional in this world and then met so many people who have these kind of cocktail of symptoms and have been through maybe not as uh, dire, but very similar journeys to mine, very similar misdiagnosis journeys. There's a great quote. And I hope, I hope we do it justice here on the radio or the, the podcast. What, what, mm. I, I'm a radio guy. I'm sorry. It's radio. <laughs> We're Whatever. still on the radio. <laughs> talk yeah. radio on your phones. That's what it is. Right. Yeah. <laughs> Which is that if you can understand that you may not have any control over a situation, it frees you to have control over something about not having control. It was a, I botched that. It was terrible. I think the gist was made. And then you were in a situation where you had no control of something. So what could you do to have control over it? And this goes down the rest of the show. We're going to talk about like allopathy versus non-Western versus your body versus voodoo versus drinking piss, and we, which is literally like <laughs> on Facebook. Again, when it, when it was less horrible and stupid kids had like half a million people on there, really heyday kind of stuff. We'd put all these amazing stories on there. And you, you're not surprised because people are crazy. Some of the comments, oh, drink your own piss, take cannabis oil, take a walk in the desert, jump up. Anything will cure you. And it's so hard to reckon what's bunk, what's real. And things have existed for like thousands of years that do work. And this was your discovery. Yeah. And I think, you know, so interesting that you talk about control because I think my, my realization over digging into some of these modalities, shall we say, is that I began with almost the green pharmacy. So I was in functional medicine, but I was like, if I can just supplement myself and regulate my diet enough and control everything, then this will work. And actually I recognized that energy of over control was absolutely the wrong thing to be applying in my situation because so many of the labels that I'd been given as diagnoses were emergent from a very stressed system. So if you're adding into that system much more stress, it's just adding to the problem and not resolving it. So getting that balance between control versus non-control and, and the essence of how how many things can I regulate versus what really can I not regulate and therefore I don't need to worry about became the thought process of how I was looking at everything. And then brought in everything from my entire history of trying to resolve my problem. So I was incredibly, I'm going to say this, and I don't necessarily mean this as simply as it sounds, but I was incredibly lucky to be misdiagnosed because I then spent a decade in the realms of mental health, 
CBT, NLP, also spirituality, things like energy medicine, things that were kind of slightly more esoteric because I was desperate to fix my, what I thought was a mental problem. So even when I eventually got my physiological label, I was still aware of the power and the benefit of some of these more softer skills, if you, if you see what I mean from a healthcare perspective. And I kind of thought, well, there has to be a way to integrate all of this stuff as a more holistic approach to what is essentially a complex systems problem. It wasn't just that my body had broken down. It was that also my nervous system was completely screwed. And when you're dealing with the nervous system, how much you're controlling also changes the tension through the nervous system. So what I realized really over time, it didn't happen immediately, but after trying all the wrong things, basically, you know, doing it wrong for a good while, I kind of realized that there needed to be a softer approach that combined some of the more kind of esoteric, more mystical, but that wasn't crazy. Like there was no way I was going to start drinking my own piss because there was no mechanism for that. <laughs> so I was like happily rooted in the science as well as having this more energetically minded approach and worked out that the only way through for me and then for all of my clients was really attending to what makes human beings human beings. And that starts from the fact that we are animals, but we are also complex systems where we have many inputs into healing and therapeutic modalities. All right. So the acronym police showed up just now. They want to know what NLP and CBT stand for. CBT. CBT is cognitive behavioral therapy and NLP is neuro-linguistic programming. They're kind of mindset tweaky tools, which focus on your ways of thinking to influence your behavior and also your internal state. So this is not surprising from maybe a superficial perspective. When you're calmer, your body's better. Uh, yeah. Oh my goodness. You should put on a t-shirt and possibly bottle that sentence and sell it to people. <laughs> it's cat poster time here and out of patience. <laughs> yes, it is so true. And it's the simplest thing and the hardest thing at the same time, because it, I mean, it's a catch 22. Your body is in a stress state because it's got dis-ease. Therefore it isn't going to be calm. So saying to someone, oh, just calm down and you'll be better. Sounds like we're back in the, it's all in your head. And that's not what we're saying. What I say to people is your mind, is a powerful tool that can be an ally to help you influence the state of your agitation and your relaxation. And if you can get into the process of playing with that, you are essentially your own medicine. So what's the one-on-one on how listeners can, you know, like the 60 second pitch of what you do, because we're going to share all the links to your work and we'd love them to go and check out what you're doing. But what is it? Is there, is there a simple ABC? There is, and it's whole systems. So basically, I have come from the approach that everything matters. And so we are complex systems, which means we have many roads to input. Some of those are physical, supplemental, talking gut health, all of those sorts of things. But there's also a huge amount of the fact that we get sick is rooted in the fact that we aren't living in our bodies in a way that matches the environment around us. So a lot of what I do with my clients is twofold, getting them much more into contact with their bodies and what their physiology is actually feeling like. And then how is that resonating with the world around it and working from the body outwards rather than adding stuff in from the outside is the ninja step of actually taking this from being this outside in everything else is responsible. The locus of control is outside me to being very much more centered in an empowering sense of how is my body feel like from just the get-go? How do I feel within me? And what do I need from my life right now to keep myself safe and to help myself feel better? 
Did you have any mentors along the way to teach you this or were you all self-taught? Are you your own clinical trial? I am kind of my own clinical trial. The interesting thing of saying that though is I am now finding people that I wish I'd met decades ago, <laughs> which I'm really annoyed slightly somewhere. I'm like, oh my God, if I'd have only known this system. So I've done a lot from the trauma perspective. So the somatic world, looking at real pure somatic education. Somatics means the whole being. It isn't just the physiology. It's that whole being energetic, which includes the physical. And so looking now at work by people like Stanley Kellerman, even Gurdjieff, his old older stuff, but also looking at the work of Peter Levine, who has done a lot of work with somatic experiencing, which is trauma resolution. And I had the mentors of people like Ra Uruhu, who founded Human Design, and Richard Rudd, who founded Jinkies. They were my teachers. And those two systems seem distant and not related, but they're all about being more within your body and then being more within the kind of environment and the global consciousness. And having that as a foundation of like archetypal language stood me in phenomenal stead. But looking to the realm of somatics and trauma work and looking at the nervous system is kind of where I, I go to now. And there are people around doing some of the similar stuff. Right. And this is not poo-poo witchcraft. This, this is science. It is. And it's very scientific from the perspective of our animal cells. I think we're still working on getting more of the science from the kind of human perspective. But we're talking about the nervous system from the perspective of having the branches of the nervous system mapped and also the way the nervous system responds under stress and threat. And that we look to polyvagal theory, which, you know, it's still a theory, but it's being scientifically borne out in various studies at the moment. We also look at the energy system. So when I say the word energetic, I'm not meaning it to be woo-woo. I'm meaning electromagnetic. We are batteries essentially as human beings. We have an electrical force. And that also resonates with the field of the earth as well, which has a resonance. And so we're always orically and energetically connecting with everything around us. And our beings, our nervous systems are taking in so much information from the world around us that we can't cognitively see it all because if we did, we'd be exhausted and we wouldn't be able to process it. So, so much is happening underneath the surface and that's the landscape that we're in. So, so much of illness is a biochemical, biological response of stress and threat to an environment that your being perceives as unsafe. And so it doesn't matter that your brain is going, do you know what? I actually feel totally safe right now. Something in the environment has stressed your animal self. And that is why there is a an illness or a sense of disease or a strain going through the system. And tension over a prolonged period of time will just create illness. Well, I'll wrap with a wonderful Neil deGrasse Tyson quote, which is that humans are mostly made of what is it? Hydrogen, oxygen, and carbon. And the top three elements that make up the universe are hydrogen, oxygen, and carbon. So we're all just the universe. Yep. We are all just little fragments of matter that are here to resonate with the world around us. All right. Uh, my head just exploded. Victoria Fenton, best British accent I've had on the show in I don't know how long. So that was therapeutic, <laughs> very linguistically therapeutic. Uh, listeners, you can find Victoria at Victoria L. Fenton on Instagram. And she has an amazing podcast called The Unveil Podcast. Lady Dame Victoria Fenton, thank you so much for joining <laughs> me here on Out of Patience. Thank you. God save the queen. <laughs> I'm sorry, no, it's God Save the King now, it's isn't it? God Save the King, you can't say that anymore. Yes, it's okay. God Save the King. All right, Rip Queen, God Save the King. Out of Patience with Matthew Zachary is an Offscript Health production. The executive producers are Matthew Zachary and Andrew McDowell. Our senior producer is Sarah Rosa Davies. It's mixed and edited by Sarah Rosa Davies and Kyle Moore. Special thanks to Brianna Seeley for added support. If you like the show, ratings and reviews are always welcome. 
Leave us a message anytime at 855-AUDIO-66. That's 855-AUDIO-66 to share your healthcare shitness with us, and we might just play them on the air on a future episode. For more information about this show and Offscript Health, visit offscript.com. That's offscript, no T, dot com.